Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. It's no secret that Malaysian politics has become increasingly turbulent in recent years. After decades of rule by the Barisan Nasional Coalition, a new alliance, Pakatan Harapan, was voted in in 2018. This was the first change of leadership at the federal level since independence. But that new government collapsed within two years and politics has remained unstable ever since. With elections likely to be called soon, what accounts for the remarkable turbulence in Malaysian politics and what does it tell us about how regimes are remade? To answer these questions, I am joined by Meredith Weiss, Professor of Political Science in the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at the University at Albany, the State University of New York. Meredith is interested in issues relating to social mobilisation, civil society and collective identity, electoral politics and parties, and regime change and institutional reform in Southeast Asia, especially Malaysia and Singapore. She is author of The Roots of Resilience, Political Machines and Grassroots Politics in Southeast Asia, published by Cornell in 2020, and co-author of a new book with Ed Aspinall, Alan Hicken and Paul Hutchcroft called Mobilising for Elections, Patronage and Political Machines in Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge in 2022. And she's going to talk us through all these issues in the Malaysian political context. Meredith, thank you for joining us on SEAC Stories. Thanks. Happy to be here. So when Pakatan Harapan got into power in 2018, it was widely heralded as the beginning of a new era in Malaysian politics. There was so much excitement. What did the victory signal at that time? For many people, the victory signaled just the fact that change could happen on the one hand and that the Barisan Nacional was indeed fallible. At the same time, it did not signal, I argue quite vociferously in the book, a change of regime. So the discussion of this as a democratic transition I think was largely overblown. Instead, it signaled a change of leadership. It signaled that Prime Minister Najib was extremely unpopular and that there were different coalitions really opposed to his continued governance. Those coalitions really took two forms. So one was Pakatan, but then the other was really so heavily dominated by PAS, but part of a coalition, an Islamist one. And so the Malay vote split really three ways. Non-Malay vote was overwhelmingly for Pakatan, but it signaled the fact that there could be a change of government through elections. Again, not necessarily a change of regime, but a change of government. So were the hopes and expectations and excitement associated with this 2018 victory tied to the new leader, or was there also hope for a change of regime at that time? I think, of course, it was both, that Pakatan came in with this very ambitious agenda of what it hoped to achieve within its first term. The leader himself, Mahathir Mohamed, was not really a bastion for reformism over time. He was the former prime minister of Malaysia for over 20 years for the BN. But this was one of the reasons why there was some space for hesitancy around what Pakatan could achieve even right from the outset. This coalition that previously had been Pakatan Rakyat, which was at that time inclusive of PAS, the Malaysian Islamic Party, had now lost PAS, gained instead an offshoot from PAS, but then also tacked on Bersatu, Mahathir's party. And Bersatu is a Malay-oriented communal party, so it fit a little bit oddly with the rest of the coalition. So on the one hand, 
there were the Pakatan stalwarts who certainly hoped that this coalition would make real headway in pressing for electoral reform, for legislative reforms, for improving civil liberties, for all sorts of other changes to the system. There were others who hoped that Mahathir would bring back something more akin to the old style BN with a Malay-focused coalition that would be much less corrupt than under Najib. And then there were others who simply really hadn't, it seemed, thought much beyond the slogan of anything but UMNO and ousting Najib. So in that sense, there was a partial, robust coalition for reform and a partial, robust clamor simply for a change of leadership. So... You've outlined a number of sort of expectations, sort of cautious optimism. To what extent were those expectations met and and what changed in the first couple of years after 2018? So what has changed since 2018? On the one hand, Pakistan did succeed in some changes to different laws and different systems. Part of that was really through the process of planning for changes that did not actually transpire under their leadership. So some of what Pakatan had aimed for really happened only later under a memorandum of understanding with the government that came into place just about a year ago now, the second one post-Pakatan. So things like the uh, anti-hopping law for parliamentarians that has just passed parliament very recently, or a political finance bill that may manage to make it into deliberation before parliament is dissolved, if parliament isn't dissolved too soon. But during the time that Pakatan was still in power, there weren't dramatic changes. There were lots of hopes for, for instance, far-reaching electoral reform. Perhaps some activists thought that there could even be a change to something like proportional representation for voting. Most of those things were really highly unlikely. There wasn't sufficient support, and it's very difficult in any situation to make that sort of systemic change. But one really consequential reform that we'll soon see the effects of, for instance, was a constitutional amendment passed unanimously in 2019. It took some time to implement it, but it did pass under Pakatan that dramatically expanded the franchise. So that was the Undi 18 provision that allowed voters between 18 and 21 to vote and automatic voter registration. So that will dramatically expand the franchise, even if there's some concern that the youngest of voters in Malaysia as elsewhere are unlikely to turn out in as high a proportion as older voters tend to do. That said, there were some other changes as well that really mattered, even if they weren't quite so glamorous. So for instance, controls on media and some other civil liberties did get better under Papatan. Not dramatically, there were still concerns with media controls in different ways, for instance. There were some serious efforts to curb corruption and to remake the anti-corruption apparatus. Some of those have continued, some really have not. But, for instance, calls to eradicate much greater share of the government's ties with business, those didn't go very far. The government-linked corporations, for instance, persisted under Pakatan. The current practice of denying opposition legislators constituency allocations, those really continued under Pakatan, though with a bit of amendment, so giving a token allocation to opposition legislators rather than zero. But more progress has been made, again, under this MOU more recently. So in that sense, a mix of hopes, a mix of bits of progress, but much of this wasn't really able to be institutionalized. And some of the more far-reaching changes, I'm not really confident would have come to pass even had Pakatan been able to serve out its term. Did that all take place within the two-year period? Some of it took place and then some of it was in the works and then took place under this MOU. I see. And you mentioned a new piece of legislation. I'm not sure if I misheard you, but was it called the Anti-Hopping Bill? What is that? 
So part of what sank Pakatan in 2020 was that legislators hopped from one party to another. The term in Malaysia is kata, it's frogs. And so the anti-hopping legislation is designed to curb that practice, to make it not possible simply to jump from one party to another, which in an era of apparently declining party loyalty and weaker party whips could help to prevent a similar sort of happenstance happening in the future. Yeah, that's a very evocative title, which is why I wanted to ask you about it. I love the idea of the politician frogs jumping from one alliance to another. Fabulous. So they did seem to either achieve a lot or plan to achieve a lot in their brief time in power. But, you know, how easy is it to really undertake this sort of massive reform? I mean, what, what sort of structures were they up against? Well, actually, a centerpiece of the recent book you mentioned, Roots of Resilience, is just how difficult it is to change such a system in as much as it's built not only on the legal system, the institutions, and so on as they are, but also on norms, on expectations, on common praxis, on all the legacy of having had one coalition in power for decades, ever since Malaysia's independence in 1957 and then for Sabah and Sarawak in 1963. And so... What it would take is really a far more dramatic restructuring and a reshaping of voter expectations such that more voters actually look for and support reform rather than looking for something else. So much of what I describe is a process by which a change of government is only one small step, but it might not even be a necessary step toward that sort of remaking of the system of shifting the expectations of what legislators do once they're in office, what they're expected to deliver, and what really makes the system run. And so what it would take to remake that is really a far-reaching shift in voter education and civic education broadly, in structures for mobilization of voters, in the political economy, and in things like how it is that parties credit what their governments have achieved or how much space they allow for meaningful opposition. Yeah, so let me ask you about changing voter expectations because I imagine that is a very difficult task. And I guess what I'm interested in is who or what incentive exists to change voter expectations, particularly if you're in power and things are working for you. There might be no incentive to try and increase voter education or awareness. Can you tell us a little bit more about changing voter expectations? Sure. So the parties that don't have resources will have an incentive, for instance, to make voters expect less in terms of resources. So Malaysia doesn't have tradition of extensive vote buying in the same way that we see in some other countries in the region. There are areas of Malaysia in which it's far more common, but especially in Semenanjung and Peninsular Malaysia, that's really not the most common practice. But at the same time, there is a longstanding tradition of handouts of other sorts, of what we might term club goods or communal goods, of things like targeted development projects for a particular constituency, which might be a basketball court, it might be fixing up a park, it might be negotiating a better deal for a hawker center or something like that. There's also a longstanding tradition of small handouts to pretty much all who need them for religious organizations, for clubs, for community centers, and so forth. And there may therefore be a very strong incentive among poorly resourced politicians, who are generally those who don't have access to the state or opposition parties, to change that system. And yet for voters, these are things that they've come to take for granted because it's just been so common. The expectation is not that giving a thousand ringgit, which is about 250 US dollars to a mosque, for instance, will itself 
shift someone's vote. But the expectation is that the MP or the state legislator, the Adun, is there when you need them. So if, for instance, there's been a flood, you should be able to call upon your MP or your state legislator to come to your aid to help you out. And this is a hard expectation to shift. What we find in Malaysia is a long tradition of politicians behaving as they're sometimes called lubang politicians or those who really focus on cleaning the drains and fixing potholes and things like that. Things that get a lot of public appreciation, but that are not really using their legislative skills to any extent, but that also take resources. So for the opposition or for those parties that have, for whatever reason, lost access to resources, there is an incentive to shift. And yet it seems instead that because voters are so accustomed to this type of politics, they rather try to adapt. They fundraise, they offer services that don't cost as much. They otherwise show that they too can be useful and reliable, even if they can't necessarily deliver projects and things that help the community that require money. So I wanted to pick up on one of the other structural barriers to change, as I understand it, and that is the elimination of local government elections. What impact did this have in terms of creating space for the party machinery to take more and more of the credit? It made a subtle but very salient impact. So in the book, I argue for really three levels at which to understand this sort of setting of expectations and shaping of structures to make it so much more difficult really to affect regime change. One level is very much at the federal government and state government level. And that really has to do with the political economy, with delivering policies for which the government in power can take credit. And this is a form of of patronage. In the forthcoming book you mentioned, we term this macro particularism, drawn on a term Paul Hedgecroft develops. But there's that level. The second level is really at the level of local government. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. The third is what I was just talking about, which is really much more at the individual level of working the ground, of developing what we term in political science as a personal vote, which is exactly what it sounds like. Even in a strong party state where most voters have party loyalties, there still is a benefit to attracting a personal vote, to being seen as personally useful and valuable. But let's go back to that interim level, which is the local government. In Malaysia, Cities may command more resources even than state governments simply because of the centralization of the federation, especially in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. So monetary policy in most places is fairly centralized, but fiscal policy is much more centralized in Malaysia than in other federations. So the share of resources that filter out to the states is pretty limited, but cities have access to other sources of funding especially the highly developed cities of the West Coast, which are the areas in which Pakistan has been strongest, including the member parties before this current coalition. And so for BN early on, they saw that it was more the case than they would like that non-BN parties were winning in municipal elections when there were municipal elections. So these were the early days of Malaysia. Initially, with an excuse largely of Confrontasi, the Indonesian attack on Malaysia, but also claims of mismanagement and so forth, the federal government started to phase out local elections. That took away a foothold for parties such as the Labour Party, which is a majority Chinese party that was fairly strong, especially on the West Coast in places like Penang, and for some other non-Malay-based parties that were able to make headway the city level, even if they didn't have a nationwide catchment and a nationwide power base. But by doing away with local elections, not only could the BN federal government, then called the Alliance, 
not only could they take away this step for upward mobility for these other parties, but they also then could manage cities themselves. So the BN tended not at the time to do as well in cities, which tended to be more heavily uh, non-Malay. At this point, most cities in Malaysia are actually majority Malay. But this myth still persists that if there are local elections, they'll be swept by Chinese parties and Malay rights will be trampled. And so not only could the BN claim to be protecting Malay rights and to be itself in power there, but they could also claim credit for what city governments do, which is to deliver all sorts of goods and services to their constituents who rely on those goods and services, everything from plumbing to roads to bus services and so forth. In Malaysia, oddly, also, many of these services are actually at the federal level. So, for instance, if the Penang state government, if they wanted to improve bus services, unless they're simply offering a free bus, which is what they've resorted to doing, that's actually under federal authority. That's really curious that the federal level is responsible for bus services. Yeah, it's very curious. And we heard opposition politicians who were trying to take control and make improvements at the city level through the state government, because for opposition parties now that control state governments, they too also control the city through these nominated rather than elected local councils, they were really hamstrung in trying to develop public transportation, which is a huge issue in cities that are increasingly car choked and crowded and polluted and so forth. I think that some of that really has to do with, on the one hand, maximizing federal control of resources and so forth, but also that until fairly recently, some of those allocations of authority were just not that clear. The BN controlled so much in terms of state governments, which then controlled the municipal authorities underneath, as well as the federal government. So in that sense, if it's all one party, you don't notice so much that, oh, this is actually at the federal level. And we in Georgetown or in Kwantan and some other city actually have no power if we're from a different coalition to change those uh, provisions. So we're aware that the next election is forthcoming at some point soon. I'm less interested in when you think it's going to happen because I don't know how people determine that sort of thing, but I'm interested in what you'll be watching out for at the next election, both in the lead up to it and the results. For me, there are several things that are especially interesting to look at. One is this simple question of who aligns with whom and in what form. The pattern in Malaysia up until now has been pre-election coalitions. As we know, lots of parliamentary systems function more with post-election coalitions. That's more likely in this case as well now than it has been in the past. But the other thing that a number of the parties have been talking about is a more Singapore-style electoral pact. So this discussion of a big tent or whatever else would be not a formal governing coalition, but simply a seat-sharing agreement. That in Malaysia rarely works out so tightly as planned, even when it is a formal coalition. Mahathir's just announced yet a new Malay-based coalition that he says will contest in seats. So that will probably introduce even more three-cornered, four-cornered, five-cornered contests. But so just this question of who allies with whom and to what extent is probably the thing I'm looking at most. The second thing will be what the messaging is and the platforms on which it happens. So as I mentioned, the franchise has suddenly expanded really dramatically. Even though there's not a tremendous amount of attention to mobilizing the 18 to 21-year-olds to vote, at least on the party side, there's a little bit more in terms of uh, social organizations, NGOs that are worried about that, just on the assumption that this part of the electorate is both less party loyal and also less likely to turn out. But how different parties or different coalitions will pitch their messages and pitch their partners and try to mobilize their voters to get to the polls. Voting is not compulsory. People do tend to vote at a very high level in Malaysia, so there usually is very robust turnout. But in the state elections, which have been happening, which are not a common thing in Peninsula Malaysia, so we shouldn't read too much into them, 
turnout has been really dramatically low. And so it's simply hard to know. I think a lot of voters also, after these two changes of government in 2020 and 2021, without elections, may be a bit disillusioned. They're probably not super jazzed up to get to the polls yet. So I'm not sure really what the parties will do to try to ensure that they get turnout. And then the last thing I would especially look at is the type of inducements that parties offer or that candidates offer to get people not just to vote, but to vote for them. So in the past, as I've mentioned, parties may offer either a retrospective list of the things that they've delivered while in government. And especially because of this MOU with this current government that allows really both sides, the BN or PN side that's in government now, and Pakatan to claim credit for some of the policy changes that have been made. It'll be interesting to see how they spin that as, for instance, a reason to expect retrospectively that if you will have us, you'll get more reform. Or if parties with differing access to resources, and I include the governing parties in that, if they find ways to offer the same sorts of goods to constituencies, low-cost housing, schools, roads, and so forth that they have in the past, especially just given the amount of turmoil in the system that we're seeing now. So it's really a mix of these factors that make for a lot of unpredictability in terms of both when the polls will be called and then also what will happen. Oh, and then I'll add a fourth, just because, especially in the case of a fairly likely post-election coalition, it matters a lot. And that is, what will happen with Sabah and Sarawak? So, of course, that's a big question. But specifically what I refer to now is increasing calls for autonomy or even secession in these two East Malaysian states. So how they will, the parties there, will spin their agenda in terms of hoping for a kingmaker status should there be a fairly evenly divided electorate and vote tally on the peninsula, which many of us expect, but also whether they'll really press this line of trying to use this leverage more creatively and more affirmatively than they have in past elections. So much to look out for. And you've got me quite excited about the elections now and given us all the things that we should be paying attention to. We have talked exclusively about Malaysia, but before we wrap up, I'm aware that you also work on Singapore. And I was wondering if you could comment on how these issues that we've been talking about around voter acculturation and the structures in terms of regime change and leadership change, how they map out in the Singaporean context. Sure. So I argue in the book, it's half on Malaysia, half on Singapore, that the same sort of authoritarian acculturation, as I call it, happens in both places. That the PAP, since it came into power, and I spent some time looking at how that happened and when that happened and how it almost didn't happen and so forth. But the PAP has similarly shaped the political economy at top level in ways that allow it to claim credit for all good things. And there are many good things for which the PAP does then claim credit how it also has eliminated from early on what had been a city government as well, that there were different levels of administration, even as it then reintroduced, starting in the 1980s, a whole system of reforms that really introduced an MP-led local government level. So you have MPs who serve as mayors, get paid for doing so. You have these different levels of authority that still allow the PAP or other parties that are in power, but that have less resources to use, to be responsible for all things, but also to control and claim credit. And this is really tied to what the PAP has claimed to want, which is to have voters make their choice really based on municipal services, based on that level, rather than based on national policymaking. At the same time, we also see these efforts to curry a personal vote in Singapore as well, despite extraordinarily high party loyalty 
and you know, a lot of real support for the PAP and for some opposition parties. So in this level, we find even the most super high qualified government ministers and other MPs and the PAP in particular, but increasingly also opposition parties can attract superstars to run for the party. So people who have really high qualifications and who get paid well for the job, walking the ground, going door to door in HTB towers to see if voters have any questions, find out what answers they can do, commiserate about the mosquitoes, all of that sort of thing. So it's in the same way as in Malaysia, the system that works from the ground up really to develop a sense of both gratitude toward the party in power and of expectations of this is what a good MP does, that a good MP is an MP who you see on the ground, knocking on your door, coming to your kid's wedding and so forth, not necessarily spending their time passing policies. Very, very interesting. Meredith, thank you so much. I was going to ask you a couple more questions about your book, but I I think we might be out of time, but you've really given us so much to think about there already. And if you are interested in learning more, please take a look at Meredith's books, The Roots of Resilience. And the new one that's just come out two days before we recorded this podcast, I think it's called Money and Machines. Mobilising for Election. Mobilising for Election. That's it. (laughs) We'll get the title right. We'll get the title right. Look, congratulations on the new book and thank you so much for joining us here on the SEAC Stories podcast. Thanks, my pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.